Greetings, dear listeners. As we head into the new year, Shadi and I had our friend Robert Nicholson of Philos on the show. Shadi was on Robert's new podcast recently debating the Abraham Accords, so we thought we'd return the favor and have Robert on to talk about the importance of religion in the Middle East. Things, of course, go off in weird tangents. By the bonus episode, we're talking about Israel's new government, but only after several philosophical detours. If you're not yet a subscriber, do become one by visiting wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. Let's get right to it then. I mean, Robert, welcome again to the pod. It's great to have you. Um, as some listeners may know, you're part of the reason that Wisdom of Crowds even started. You are part mm. of the origin story. And, you know, we were on we were on a bus in Israel, as one, one tends to be. <laughs> and um, this was the summer of 2019. Mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of other, you know, journalists and analyst type people on the bus as part of this um, research trip that your organization, Philos, organized. And Megan McArdle of the Washington Post was listening to me and Demir going back and forth in the back of the bus. And she's like, hey, you guys should just get a podcast. And we took that quite literally. And very soon thereafter, we started the podcast and the rest is history. So first of all, thank you, Robert. Indeed. And we're, we're happy to have you because, well, for any number of reasons, but we should note to listeners that you have your own podcast now. You're the host of a new podcast called The Deep Map. And yeah. I was the first guest on it. And That's right. I really appreciate that you had me on because I have a very different view than you on the very topic of your po- on you know of your podcast like one of the things that you've been looking at is the Abraham accords and this thaw and the relationship between arabs well arab regimes and israel and i'm an outspoken critic of the abraham accords um i don't like them i you know i wish there was an alternate history where they didn't happen but you still <laughs> had me on and we talked that through it just shows the kind of um, broad-minded approach that you have but maybe let's start with that, you know, um, and then we can get into some bigger issues around um, religion and politics. But maybe there is an intersection here because you're someone who said that if we want to understand the Arab-Israeli conflict, we have to take religion seriously. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? How has is, how is your thinking evolved on this question of the role of religion and the extent to which it drives conflict in the region? My views on that particular topic have only gotten stronger. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming fanatical on this point. And it's not just Arab-Israeli conflict. It's it's really all conflicts. And, and let me be clear about what I mean by that, because it's often misinterpreted. And I didn't realize it was being misinterpreted until recently. I think when I say that one has to you know, factor in religion, more than factor in, like think about it deeply in any situation, conflict or otherwise. 
people think I mean that, uh, you know, X religion in question is is evil and encourages violence or that religion in general is 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 linked to violence or I mean, there's a lot of assumptions that people make. And that's not what I mean. What I mean is that human beings are fundamentally spiritual. They do things uh, to meet bodily needs and they do things to meet spiritual needs. Right. We're sort of two things in one. And while it's true that one has to think about uh, economics and uh, social dynamics when looking at conflicts, just as much or more, one needs to be thinking about religion, right? What are the invisible things that the people in this particular part of the world believe to be true? It doesn't even matter if it is. And how is how are those beliefs influencing their actions? Because people do irrational things, right? And you can't account for it in any other way. They feel things, right? There's there's fear, there's a sense of, of triumph, right? And all these things are based on uh, myths, essentially. And I think that one of the biggest shortcomings, certainly in US policy, but I really I think it's universal these days, um, is the fact that we just don't think about it. And, or we're afraid to think about it. We're afraid to touch that because if we do, some Pandora's box opens and everything gets much worse, where I think it's actually the opposite. I think if you start with an appreciation of what people believe to be true and, and, and why that's driving them to do this or that, you are able to actually be much more empathetic to, to both sides or all sides in any given conflict and begin to think about, okay, what, what can really solve this conflict? You know, you think about Ukraine, you think about Iran, you think about uh, you know, very, you know, I work on Christian communities around the Near East. You think about the Arab-Israeli conflict. You think about Palestinians. Like, you think about Trump, anti-Trump in this country. So much of these uh, debates are shaped by the participants' beliefs. So why aren't we talking about it? So I started this podcast really to give myself something. Everybody's talking about politics, and I, I'm, I love politics, but to me, politics are derivative. You know, they're the dependent variable. Religion's the independent one. And uh, I just don't think people are talking about these things enough. So that, that was where the podcast came from. So Robert, your use of the word irrational is interesting to me because presumably if people are doing the things that they do, they don't think those things are irrational. They've made a conscious decision to pursue a particular course of action based on deeply held beliefs or perhaps not so deeply held beliefs, but they've made a calculation and they've decided to do something. So can, can you maybe say a bit more about how you view the question of rationality versus irrationality? Sure. I, well, I think irrational in this context means uh, in the eyes of those around them, right? Somebody you know, a suicide bomber blows themselves up, right? For people who get blown up or people who see it happen, they think insane, right? I mean, you're going to kill yourself. Why would you do that? I mean, you cut off your nose to spite your face. But I, I agree with you that in this person's mind, this is abundantly rational, right? This is this is the right thing to do. But you can't prove that, right? It's 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 unverifiable that his theory of the cosmos is correct, right? That he's going to die and he will be rewarded in certain ways or, or whatever. And, um, but that's really important. Now, th these things are often dismissed in policymaking circles 
as the, you know, the product of social circumstances or financial difficulties or whatever. But I, I take all that stuff very seriously. Like it matters to me what that guy thinks. I want to know exactly what he thinks and the details of it and where he learned it. And if it's a, if it's ubiquitous in his community or if he's just some kind of outlier, I mean, why wouldn't that be the most interesting part of that analysis? But it's, it's like a taboo topic. I don't, I don't think it's that nobody sees it. I think it's just, it's uncomfortable because it, 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 there's not, there's no, there's no objective basis by which to measure these things or to say, well, he's wrong or he's right or, or whatever. And that's, that's difficult, right? For people who have to make, you know, quick decisions in, in real time in terms of politics or policy. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, to the difficulties of leaders who have to make these decisions. But I think those of us who don't should be trying to, uh, you know, enrich the conversation in that regard as much as possible. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, Robert, the, 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 the thing about, you know, you're saying about foregrounding religion and a lot of this stuff, um, you don't necessarily though mean that, that, you know, these are fundamentally religious conflicts, right? It's just that it needs to figure into it. I mean, the reason I, I sort of, uh, you know, that, that like caught my ear is because ultimately, you know, the, the thing about religious conflict, you can have, you can have dialogue, uh, but if you, you're starting about, you know, deeply held beliefs that are foundational, uh, on some level, there's an irreconcilability towards, uh, between sort of things that are deeply held. Now, again, dialogue, interfaith dialogue, all of that serves a role, but, you know, it's, they're not simply religious conflicts and it's not simply that, right? It's just that, that you wish that policymakers would take it more into account. The reason I react to it is because, you know, it's like, it, it's, there's something about when people start talking about religious conflicts, that just makes me think of, you know, the Balkans and ancient hatreds and things like that, which mm. is also a very convenient way to just sort of wave it away, you know, and say like, well, you know, it's a, mm. it's a religious conflict. Well, you know, nothing to be done there. So I don't know. And, you know, even thinking through what I was just saying, it makes me think maybe that's why policymakers shy away from it, because they don't see it as a productive means of engaging in any of that. Is that fair? It's, it's true. Um, but, you know, it also has to do with the way... Westerners in particular think about religion, right? We think of it as something you kind of hide in your heart and, you know, you do on Sunday morning or, or Friday night or whatever. Um, but, you know, in certainly in the part of the world I work on in the Near East, the Middle East, religion, you know, especially Judaism and Islam have a very public dimension. I mean, Shadi knows this, writes about it. I mean, this is, it is all pervasive. It is everywhere, even for people who are not believers, right? You know, you meet a Muslim, you know, I don't know, does he actually believe in the in the doctrines? Right. Maybe, maybe not, but right. he, he would never think about not being a Muslim or have living in a society that isn't at least formally based on uh, the Quran and the values within it, right? So it's like, it's true, but it's also, it, it's too big to avoid. I mean, think about the Syrian civil war. Right. There's all kinds of I mean, how many zillions of gallons of ink have been written about the Syrian civil war? And yet the most important fact of the war is that you have, you know, a Sunni Muslim majority that has a certain way of, you know, thinking of believing of, of living a certain kind of society it wants to see speaking generally. 
and you have uh, a sort of a, a smattering of various non-Muslim or non-Sunni minorities who have a very different view, and, and they're all kind of locked in the same room. So it's there's a structural issue here also, and you find that you found that in the Balkans, right? Insofar as you have people with all of these fundamental different worldviews crammed into the same space, surrounded by a solid line, you can do your best to try to solve the the you know the quote unquote political problems, but they're, the big big problem, the thing that is making it all happen is the one thing you don't want to talk about. Right. So I'm not, I won't sit here and pretend that, you know, there's a very neat and, and clear and coherent way to talk about religion. It's sort of inside you, it's in the collective, it's in the air, it's it's hard, but it, it has to be foregrounded. I think that's the right word, it has to be. Let me, so I might, this might be a weird question, Robert, but okay, so you described a general Muslim vibe of being inclined towards religion, regardless of what people believe in their hearts. Do you think that is a good thing on balance or a bad thing? Like if we say that at least Muslims in the Middle East and particularly in the places that you focus on in the region are this way, do you think it's, I know that you're, you know, one of the things that I like about you, Robert, is that you like to understand and you're not here to pass judgment or make big normative claims about the way things should be. But I am, and that's why I'm not even sure exactly what you'll say, but hmm. what, is it good, bad, something in between? I think it's good until it's not. I think generally good. I like, I like faith, you know, religion sounds bad, faith sounds better somehow. So I'll, I'll use faith in this context. I, I like it, right? It shapes, I'm a person of faith. It shapes the way I think about the world. It shapes how I talk to people, like the things I don't say to people, it shapes everything. Like from, from my perspective, it is, it is part of my identity. It is my identity, at least it starts there. And I like that. Now, the problem comes when people, let's say me, uh, impose my worldview on someone else that's that to me is the line and that's where pluralism becomes so important and for me pluralism is just sort of like you know mutual respect amid difference you know and sometimes it takes place across a national border sometimes it takes place across a street but it's this idea that we all recognize we believe in big important things that shape our idea of who we are and what all of this is about but we also recognize that what I believe and you believe may not necessarily be the same and that we're going to agree to disagree and uh, do our own thing. That works in but some it, places better part... than others mm -hmm. with some religions better than others. But, and that's, but, but that's, that's where the analysis needs to start, I think. But yeah, isn't part of the issue that what you described, the kind of um, threshold of concern where people start to impose their worldview on others, part of the problem is we don't agree on what it, what that actually means, what counts as an imposition. And I think certain, even in the US context, I think that you know debates around abortion and public religiosity and to what extent certain organizations, churches, communities need to you know, follow certain things around, uh, you know, whether it's gender identity, gay marriage, and so forth. I, there is there is this kind of blurry space of in between, where people, some people would say, like one man's imposition is another man's 
I don't know, fill in the blank. Yeah, let me mm-hmm. let me just jump in, even Robert, before you answer that, maybe to maybe even challenge. I mean, it's just an ongoing thing that Shadi and I talk about. But you know, the the you said uh, faith is not a problem, and being you know inclined to faith is not a problem until it is. Is the problem when faith becomes the sole identifier within a community, within a society? And this is, I mean, to turn it on Shadi, you know, the the fights he and I often have about this is, you know, this question of minimal democracy and, and what's required. And, you know, my intuition is that you need something, something above to glue it all together. And I, I think, I feel like Shadi's argument often is, is that you need... Um, you know, just just a, a an agreement on the rules. Like minimal democracy is just you agree mm. that democracy is how we solve this, and you respect that, and that's enough. I always have this intuition that that's not enough. You need some kind of larger idea. So I mean, you know, Shadi's point about like imposition on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, the other way to think about it is like, is there is there something overarching here that's that's necessary? You know, is that the problem with mm. faith as like the soul defining thing? I don't know, how, how do you how do you parse both of those, both sides of that? Yeah, well, those are those are really tough questions. Those are the big questions. I and I'm not going to sit here and say I've got it all figured out. I don't. This is a it's a journey, as they say. But um, I think that this is where uh, it becomes important to point out that that some religions are more are more public than, than others, right? Christianity, there's a, there's obviously lots of uh, intermingling of Christianity and politics, but, you know, if you read the texts and there's a sort of, uh, you know, let's get down to the, to the original doctrines, it's, it's much more apolitical than say Judaism or, or Islam and, and, and some other religions. And um, I think that matters in a political context because, uh, you know, Christians just like Muslim and Jews like to live in groups and they like to have their societies reflect some basic set of values, but uh, they differ from Jews and Muslims in being okay with seeing these things enshrined in public law. Now, when it comes to religious liberty issues, Shadi, some of the things you mentioned, I think it's the, you know, the whole topic of, of carve-outs and of religious exemptions and all of that is extremely important in, in a democracy. But I think when you when you say you're in a you know in a, an Islamic context or or you know you look at what you know there's a new government coming in in Israel and some of what the people in that new government want to see in public law in terms of observance of of Sabbath and in closing of stores on certain days and you know changing agricultural laws and all that that's when those those religious exemptions those carve outs. Uh, may not be enough. And then you're talking about, you know, you're back to the fundamental question, like, can we as a group of people all live in this society together? Do we agree on what this thing even is, right? Which to me seems like a more important question to ask before you get to the, okay, then, so what are the rules that we're going to observe as we as we uh, live together? And it's why I'm probably closer to, to you, Demir, on this about a big idea linking people together. Of course, historically, the other way to do it is a big personality or a big dynasty. You know, that when there were dynasties in the world and monarchies, these questions became, you know, they became less important. Once we decided that we all had to, that we had to politicize every aspect of life with democracy, now everything is is kind of on the table in terms of 
how to organize life. There's obviously, I love living in democracy, but the downside is that, you know, if you have 61% of the people who have a certain vision of the cosmos and then want to, you know, change the laws of that society based on that vision, the other, the other, you know, 49% are, uh, you know, they're in a, they're in a, they're in a big, they're in a bad situation and, and, you know, religious liberty exemptions at a certain point point don't quite cover it. Having said that, last thing I'll say, I don't have a problem on the face of it of a Muslim country or a Jewish country or a Christian country. You know, I was just in Armenia, 99% Christian or whatever it is. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's great that they, they're like, we're Christian. We've been Christian for a really long time. We want to keep doing that. And we're actually going to, you know, do things in the public square to reflect that. I, on principle, I like that. It's, it's when uh, the line is crossed. And, and I think in each case, it's a little bit different as to what that means. I don't know if that was a coherent answer, but it's, but it's yeah, the best I've got. No, it is. And I, and I think that, and this is where I would disagree with Demir's perspective. Well, it's not so much I would disagree. If there was a higher set of principles and you go like one step above and you you don't stay with the democratic minimalism and you try to come up with some coherent narrative or thread that brings different citizens together, that would be amazing, of course. The problem is it's not clear how exactly you do that in deeply divided societies. Like So people have been debating this for, for years now. What is the thing that is going to bring Americans back together? And I just don't think there is a satisfying answer. And I have, like, at least from my standpoint, I haven't seen or read a satisfying answer to that question. But it's even more difficult in a country like Israel. What, so in my ideal world, um, there would be an Israeli identity that transcended religion, that it wasn't about being Jewish, but it was about, well, being Jewish could be important, but that there was something beyond that, that there was a sense of shared mission and understanding that all citizens of the country could share, including the Arab minority. In other words, um, Israeli citizens who are not Jewish, and that's about um, 15 to 17% of the population. And but like, how is that possible in a country that is defined according to its Jewish identity? You reach a kind of impasse. Let me just, mm -hmm. just one thing, you know, I, I think we really should talk about Israel because I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's paradigmatical of a lot of this stuff, but just on, on, you know, to answer your question, Shadi, in terms of America, I, I'm not sure you have an easy way to do it in a deeply divided society. But I think that that you know when the society was founded, this one in particular, it 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 was much less well. I mean, it was still deeply divided, but you could still basically uh, craft a set of myths. And I think the the answer here is is you said narratives, but yeah, myths, stories about it, like mm -hmm. basically uh, foundational stories. And again, we've talked about this before, but it's it's it's. But we disagree civil... on those foundational stories. That's the issue. The now. problem it's is too now. Late. That's How do you right. put that back together? Well, no, no, that's correct. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, this is why the biggest the biggest thing that gives me worry about it is that we've started squabbling over you know things that maybe just so stories that Abraham Lincoln so beautifully rendered and you know made poetry out of, but you know weren't necessarily true historiography or whatever. Um, but but you know abandoning that, I think that that's one of the things that that does worry me about the United States because I don't think when you get to a situation where you have a society that is increasingly 
bereft of those kinds of things, uh, I think it's very difficult to put that back together. And yeah, you know, I mean, you have this like creedal idea in America, but then, you know, the flip side of it is there's a, maybe a more prosaic way to think about it is, is you know, I, we've talked about this recently. I don't know how you feel, Robert. I, I thought these last midterm elections showed a, a very healthy Americanism and like a, a plural mm. society that is not as divided as our stupid little bubble makes us think it is. I mean, it's, it, there's not mm. consensus or agreement, but there's a kind of sense of, you know, the elections happened. We voted as Americans. There was no violence. There was, you know... Uh, no, no denialism, no, like no, no craziness around it. And it's, it's, you know, so maybe it's things like, you know, just shared time together and like baseball and other sort of like very American things that are less lofty than, than, you know, the mythology around the founding fathers, but you need that. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a, a pivot to then how to think about, you know, Israel is can, can you craft some kind of shared identity, you know, over lived experience together. The problem is, is that the lived experience together has been, you know, violent and tense for a very long time. So, you know, that presents a difficulty. I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. I, what do you guys well, think? Well, I mean, yeah, no, there's a lot there. I, I think, I don't think, Shadi, it's possible to craft an Israeli identity that is, you know, the, that goes above supersedes Jewishness or, or Palestinianness, Arabness. I just don't think it's possible. And I don't think it's something that we should expect from, from anybody. And I wouldn't expect it in Egypt or in any, in Iraq or in Armenia. I think that the, it is the right of peoples to be themselves uh, in every, in every way, right. Every aspect of themselves and to live as a society independently sovereignty and to craft their their law um, in light of that. And I think it's the right of people inside those societies who don't share that overarching identity to be given the same rights and the same place, right, as humans, even if not part of that larger collective, and to be guaranteed security in doing so. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of minimalist on that. And when I think things get to a point where it becomes clear that that's just not possible. And this is where I'm going to jump the shark a bit. And those, then those, then that couple needs to divorce. And I, and I'm talking about borders, right? There's a reason why I'm a two state solution guy. You know, it's like me in the Alamo. I'm the last guy left still uh, trying to hold the fort down because I don't think Palestinians and Israelis can share a society, not not in the long term, maybe, you know, briefly, so long as a certain amount of force is applied. But these people are just too different, right? They come not just from two ethnicities, but by and large, they're from two very large religious civilizations, right? With different historical memories. They have completely antithetical views of 1948. Like these two peoples of all people, we're going to lock in the same room? Like, no, of course not. They... Palestinians, will, and this is like, yeah. I could make a pro-Israel argument for why Palestinians need their own state. It just it just doesn't work, right? And why we're also, um, you know, I think about other parts of the region, right? Everybody's allergic to Sykes-Picot. Uh, but I mean, have you seen the borders of Europe over the last thousand years? I mean, I don't think there's two years together where, where the borders are actually the same. I mean, the fact is, people's change, people's move, right? Ideas change. There's there's a certain amount of flexibility and fluidity 
that needs to be worked into these calculations that says that, that actually solves some of the problem of people with different fundamental worldviews being forced to live in the same society. Like if those lines can become more flexible, uh, and I'm not talking about, by, by the yeah. way, population transfers and all of that. I'm just talking about uh, agreements, deals, uh, you know, big things that can be done to, to uh, you know, especially working with outside powers to, to change the dynamics on the ground, change some of the structural problems so that different peoples with different worldviews can have their own space. Sometimes it's sovereign and independent. Sometimes maybe it's some in a federal arrangement. I don't know, but I think that does give so, a lot of uh, cushion to what we're talking about. Okay, divorce is possible when we're talking about Israelis and Palestinians. I think, I don't really see how divorce works when you're talking about Israeli Arabs who are not part of some future state in Gaza and the West Bank. They are Israeli. I, I don't know. So I, that, I actually don't know if there's an answer. Yeah, but is that, that a problem? I'm, I'm getting more. Why, why is that a problem? Like there's Arab why states all over the region. Why, why can't you be, I mean, I know these people. I know a number of them. Mansour Abbas is one of these people, right? The, the Islamist uh, member of the government. I mean, it's, or former member. Like, it's very possible to live in a state that's not yours and say, yeah, I'm not that, but you know, I like it here. I mean, Britain was, was Christian still is right. There's, you can be a Yazidi in Armenia. I was just with them and like, they don't have an issue with Armenia being a Christian country so long as they're Yazidis and they're accepted and they have rights and they do all the same stuff everyone else does. I don't, I, to me, that but just they, doesn't seem like mm. a big problem. Like why does, why do well, Yazidis well, clearly, have to feel a, a part of Armenian, you know, society in, in that, in like the highest possible way. I just don't, I don't know. You Maybe really not in the highest possible way. I don't think there has to be an Arab prime minister of Israel, which, you know, obviously will never happen um, if Israel stays the way it basically is. But I think that at least a lot of the Arab Israelis I talked to, and actually I just had a meeting with um, representatives from the Masawa Center, which you might be familiar with, and mm -hmm. they're an Arab Arab rights in Israel um, advocacy organization. So they're very focused on this particular issue of the 15 to 20% of Arabs in Israel proper. And the level of pessimism, I mean, again, like it depends who you talk to, but over time, just in terms of the starkness of the situation, my own perception is that it's getting worse, um, in part because there is a new far-right government, or at least, let's say, the most right-wing elected government in Israel's history. So when that sort of thing happens, then it brings a lot of this into stark relief for people who have to bear the brunt of exclusivist policies. And, you know, so if you're in... So for example, one thing they told us, which is not new, but it's just worth just be remembering the overall context. It is hard to speak Arabic publicly in Israel in a lot of, in a lot of parts of the country, that that is something that people suppress or they're careful about how openly they're speaking Arabic. So just, you know, talking to your mom on the phone in Arabic that's some, if you don't feel comfortable doing that in your own country, speaking your native tongue, because other people, Israel, you know, Israeli Jews will see that as potentially a threat, or does this mean that, 
you're going to commit a violent act or something like that, at a very fundamental level, it becomes hard to live in a society like that, even if you do have the right to vote, so on and so forth. But the basic fact of the matter is that you are an Arab and you you can't participate in the national anthem. You can't participate in the defense of the state through the through military service. You probably are never gonna be a minister in the cabinet. At best, you could be a minister without portfolio, but any any real senior level position in the cabinet is probably not gonna be possible for you because you're not someone who buys into or believes in the Jewish nature of the state because you yourself are not a Jew. If you marry someone who is not an Israeli citizen, that person is not going to easily become a citizen of Israel, where someone who has never set foot in Israel who's Jewish because of the because of the right of return for, for, for those who are Jews. So just basic things speak to a fundamental inequality between Arabs and Jewish citizens. So if equality before the law is what you need, there's not even really that in Israel proper. I Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I, I'm in Israel a lot and I don't, I don't understand the idea that Arabs can't speak Arabic. You hear it everywhere. I mean, everywhere, the mall, the restaurant. I mean, it's literally everywhere. So I don't, I'm not sure that- But in specific, but, but, but specific areas where, um, yeah, I, that's why I said like in certain parts of Israel, that can be sensitive. Like if you're close Maybe. to, if, you know, if you're close but to I a mean, settle. Like, anyway, I just we don't. don't so like I'm, I'm 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 a minimalist in my pluralism because I travel around this region too much and everything that you're saying applies for Christians in every other country, right? You can't walk around speaking Assyrian or Aramaic, whatever you want to call it, in northern Iraq because people think you're speaking Hebrew or some other thing, right? That's 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 a common thing that's said. I mean, there's I could go on. There's like long, long lists of ways in which people who don't share the fundamental worldview of the majority, you know, a majority that has publicly in its constitution said this is a, you know, a Muslim state based on the Quran and the Sharia is the main source of legislation. That's, by the way, that's the basic law of Palestine, right? That's actually what the Palestine basic law says. This is a Muslim state. Arabic's the language. It's an Arab state. And uh, we speak okay, Arabic. But, but and, and I just, just to interrupt there, the I just want to... So, it's okay, very but, normal. But it's just normal. Christian, I'm not mad about that either. Okay, but a Palestinian Christian can feel fully Palestinian. A Copt in Egypt can feel fully Egyptian. Many of the Egyptian Copts I know are Christian. proud of their Egyptian identity. Sorry? Yeah, but their identity is not bifurcated. I mean, they're Christian, so they, they can't be fully Egyptian. They can't be fully uh, Jordanian. But, no, they, they can't, can't be. be. I mean, fully... Well, I mean... They can't. They cannot Many participate Egyptian in Christians the state I at know the highest feels, level. Hmm. They can't. I mean, you can't even. You can't even get into the the soccer leagues, like the big soccer leagues in Egypt, if you're a Christian. If your name is such but and such, you know. Yeah. It's no. It's it's very. But, it's a very can, common problem in the region, is what I'm saying. So I don't like it. But you can talk to I an just Egyptian kind Christian. Of just, it. I, I. But you can talk to an Egyptian Christian who says, "I am. I am Egyptian. This is my country. I'm proud of it." And I will defend it where it's much more difficult to have an Arab citizen of Israel 
who can say those same things, um, even with something as basic as, you know, the national anthem. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, there is there is a difference there, isn't there? Just in terms of how people self-identify and being I mean, proud I of a certain the, identity. Being proud, I'd have to think about that. I'd have to think about that. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, Demir said it's paradigmatic. Paradigmatic. I think it's it's singular in lots of ways. The Arab-Israeli or or Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and insofar as you have this tiny fragment of the massive Arab nation sliced off and kind of planted in Israel, yeah, it's a weird situation. It's uncomfortable, and you can't fully be. You know, if I was the only American living in Iran or, I don't know, China maybe these days, I might say, yeah, you know, yeah, I get all my rights and all that, but I don't quite feel at home here. Because why? Because there's like this bigger overarching conflict that is is in the air. So I think there's there's like a, a zoom out thing that is important in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict always. You know, from the Israeli perspective, the Israeli Jewish perspective, it doesn't look the same as it does um, to the maybe Israeli Arab or Arab around the region, right? Israelis, they're seeing the region and they're thinking of themselves as a minority, where Arabs uh, in Israel are thinking about themselves in Israel and seeing themselves as the minority. And it's, they're both right, but it does shape the way the two peoples think about the other and living together. Here's a question, Shadi, for you uh, and, and minimal democracy. Um, what, how would minimal democracy work? Could it work in Israel where basic rights to you know, vote and organize are preserved um, and uh, you know, maybe enforced uh, differently than they are now? But nevertheless, that, that feeling of full belonging uh, is out of reach. How does, that, how does that stress test your minimal democracy thesis about that's all you need? Well, that's to, precisely you know, what Israel is today. It, yeah. it does fulfill democratic minimalism. And I often cite Israel as the most successful Ill, illiberal democracy in the world. So when people say, well, oh, illiberal democracies never last, they always devolve into authoritarian rule. Well, first of all, that's not true in a number of other cases, but it's certainly not true in the case of Israel. And so in that sense, Israel is a model for, but I mean, I'm so here's, people are sometimes confused by this because they're like, Shadi, aren't you contradicting yourself? But my position is simple. I, I don't like the outcomes in Israel but as a democratic minimalist, I have to acknowledge and accept that this is the result. It's the same way that I feel about the persecution of um, discrimination against Muslims in India un under Hindu nationalist rule. Elections are free and there just happens to be a permanent minority that is fundamentally disadvantaged in electoral competition. And then I, do I like beef bans on the local level? No, I wish they didn't happen, but they are democratically legitimate. And if Hindus in a particular state, in Indian state, want beef bans, they should have the right to express those preferences through public policy if they're able to get enough votes. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, France, I am one of the most outspoken people on just how how absurd some of the aggressive French secularism is when it comes to limiting 
the you know the role that a Muslim woman who wears headscarf can play in state institutions, for example. That's crazy to me. But if that's what the majority of French citizens want, then I have to I have to respect that. So that's how that's how I would sort of thread the needle. I don't like a lot of these outcomes, but they are democratically legitimate. And so, so in Israel, then yeah, go on. Uh, sorry, well, I was just going to say. So if it's just applying the same logic, right? If if the majority Jews say this is a Jewish state and this is going to be the anthem, that's the flag. Like that's just what it is. Democratically arrived at those conclusions. I mean, doesn't that just obviate the whole, you know, inquiry as far as you know, Israeli Arabs? No, do they, no. Look, can they identify no, at the they, highest so, level? It's you, like, well, it's what the majority has. Well, said. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I feel and about get, it, but I'm just trying to understand your your point. Totally, yeah. That is that is the right of the Jewish majority to pursue this course. That doesn't mean I have to like it. And that doesn't mean that Arab citizens of Israel have to like it. I mean, I, I think normatively it is bad, just like I think restrictions on um, conspicuous religious symbols in France after the 2004 law are normatively bad. But mm -hmm. democracies have the right to pursue bad things. I mean, that's really at the heart of my, my view on this. And that's why I always say, well, you know, um, this is the problem of democracy that, you know, and that's why I wrote a book about it, that basically democracy is the right to make the wrong choice. Another way of phrasing it is democracy is about the right to make bad choices that I, Shadi Hamid, disagree with profoundly. But is your disagreement mm -hmm. just uh, an opinion or is it grounded in like some sense of justice? And does that justice have any impact on on state legitimacy? No, I'm not willing to go that step. <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> no, I mean, just it's not my view of just. No, I, I mean, I, I don't. Justice, we, we don't. I don't. I have my own views of justice, but I don't. I'm not comfortable saying that my view of justice is the one that is correct and normatively sort of valid where the others aren't. Obviously, different religious traditions come at the question of justice in different ways. There are secular and liberal conceptions of justice, and there's no inherent like there's no inherent reason that my view of justice should win out over the others. Robert, how do you how do you parse and that's why democracy is ultimately yeah. the final arbiter because if we as citizens or as individuals don't agree on what justice means. We have to, the only way we can arbitrate is through democratic competition. So, but Robert, how, how do you how do you approach the question of justice? I mean, you're not. You're, I think you guys have similar-ish sort of instincts on this, but I, I I I would guess that you're somewhat different on this, Robert. Justice between well, I mean, whom? just is it like states or it does, does or Shadi's you know so Shadi, Shadi seems to you know not seems to I know he he says uh, you know you have a. a a divided society, you have even lopsided majorities, um, you know, as long as you preserve minimal democratic access for the minority, uh, but then the, the tyranny of the majority has a lot of leeway, basically. He may not like it. Mm -hmm. He'll say, I don't like it, but he won't say that uh, his intuition, his dislike of it is linked to a higher sense of he, that we would call justice. So he wouldn't go so far as to say, this arrangement is unjust and illegitimate. Um, 
because mm-hmm. that's I would say that it, it could be unjust according to a certain view, but it's not illegitimate. Yeah. So un- injustice and illegitimacy don't go together. Where I feel like the modern liberal or progressive position on this is that injustice is tied to illegitimacy. Yeah. One leads to the other. I mean, Robert, maybe talk about it just in terms of conflict, right? And like how, how we approach conflict. Because I mean, I feel like a lot of this sort of conflict resolution stuff ends up being tied to, you know, addressing perceptions of injustice and, you know, things like that. And, you know, I, and that's also, I think, bogs down a lot of this, this stuff. Maybe it's what you're reacting to against when people don't want to, you know, engage with the religious stuff. I don't know. How do, how do you even parse any of this? Hmm. Wow, you guys just asking all the easy questions yeah, today. Yeah. Just justice. <laughs> Let's talk. Uh, well, so I would I would agree with Shadi that there are different conceptions of justice. And I would go further and say that those conceptions almost always come out of some tradition, some religious tradition, revealed tradition, usually out in our part of the world. Um, or they're a secularized version of some revealed tradition. And I think that's really where you get a lot of the, the progressive, uh, uh, you know, narrative these days. And because that's true, that means that, as he says, justice will look different uh, and be satisfying to different degrees to different people. Recognizing that when it comes to arbitrating between two peoples with two different traditions and therefore two different visions of justice, my cop-out is to say that this, my minimal pluralism is the answer. It is giving, understanding who you are, understanding that the other side is not you and is something very different, and finding practical ways to create the, you know, to build the fence metaphorically between you, right? So people who have certain views of justice can have the, the live in that kind of society and that you can do the same in yours and that the ability for the two of you to do that alongside of each other, maybe not even liking each other, maybe hating each other, is in its own way some kind of meta-justice, hmm. right? Like, hmm. I, I think that there's there's um, there's a lot to what Shadi's saying and that it's, it's I'm, I resist universal theories as a rule and I, I think we we use them far too much, and that in most cases, a lot of it is recognizing that we have two things tangled up here, you know, two different groups with two different views. They need to be pulled apart. Or and this is where I'm going to jump another shark. I think a lot of you know historically, what how does this work out? People migrate, people leave, people vote with their feet. You don't like you know what did Jews do, living in all these different Christian societies who were oppressive in, in this way or that. They lived there until they couldn't live there. And then they moved to the state next door. Now that's not satisfying today because we don't we don't like, we want people to just stay in one spot and everybody's got to have the same rights in the same spot for all time and forever, them and their descendants. But historically, that's not the way humanity works, right? People Well, there is a complication in this case. Are. I mean, there's not a clear alternative for Israeli Arabs. In, like there's no, like if you're an Israeli Arab who, who's singing to themselves, I want to vote with my feet. Like, where would you go? I, Presumably the two states. I, I, I wasn't actually thinking land, about too. Israel, I mean, part, but part well, of the uh, issue here why, is that well, they, they, they I believe mean, how many this Arab is their states land. Are right, but this yeah, is where the two-state sure. solution whoa, 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 gets Robert, at it, right? No, no, but come on, no. No, whoa, but, I, wait, what? Just, <laughs> no but hold on a second. I mean, what Robert's saying is, is basically, 
population transfers but that they're happen not, not necessarily okay. at the point of a gun, but but like through coercion and stuff yeah, like that. Move. That is the history of the world. He's right. Okay, about but Palestinians. Okay, but Palestinians who are Israeli citizens are not Egyptian. They are not Moroccan. But they that's are why not Robert, Saudi. Sure. But that's this why Robert's suggesting his, his his way out is actually setting up a no. viable Palestinian state, and then you you yeah, do a population. I'm, I'm a Palestinian state guy. No, no, okay, I'm, right, but I'm not. I mean, not everything's about exist that. I'm just thinking about. For, go on. I okay, I agree, but I'm just, I'm just. It was, a, it was a general statement. It wasn't about Arabs or Palestinians. I'm just saying, you know, there are Assyrians in northern Iraq who think that's my land. That's been my land since before Jesus, and yet they're living in Australia. Why? Because they realized that society, the way that it's shaped, the way that it works or doesn't work, just isn't going to do it for them anymore or for their kids and they can, they just can't stay. So they move. I mean, it's tragic. I don't like that either, but I'm saying as a, as a last resort, there is an, you know, an alternative here. People can go to those societies that are more aligned in terms of those fundamental worldviews. I mean, that's, I don't know. That doesn't seem controversial. Yeah. Well, well, look, I mean, first of all, it's not easy to um, get, to get entry into Australia. I mean, especially with their pretty um, hardline immigration stances over the years. But, you know, you can apply this to any number of Western states where it's become harder for someone to claim asylum or refugee status and so forth. So here we're presuming but that it's, it's happening possible here. for- it's, it's happening in New York state. I mean, you know how many people I know have moved to Florida? It's the same exact thing, right? It's just on a smaller scale. Mm it's the first well, time they in my have life right people are making move. political moves right right I but mean, they have they're right actually moving because Florida they think because, whatever i mm. it's a fundamental worldview i think it's kind of silly but people like to move because of a governor or something like that but people are and, and if you really got down to it like why would you pick up your whole family and move from here to florida besides the weather it's because why because they think well that that society is more like who I am, and it's going to reflect my values. So they pick up their right, stuff but as American citizens, they they have the right to to live anywhere in the U.S. as American citizens. That's not necessarily analogous to an Israeli Arab moving to Australia or to Egypt. First of all, it, it's very you you can't really immigrate to a country like Egypt. That's not even like an option. So I'm sure people already know this, but Arab states don't accept immigrants. Like you cannot become a citizen of these countries mm-hmm. unless you are like on the World Cup team or they want to, you know, something like that, <laughs> like, you know, right. whatever. But you, this idea that movement is possible for Arabs, Arab, first of all, Arab states suck and they're all almost all authoritarian for reasons we don't have to get into here. So... Um, and I'm very comfortable saying that these Arab states are worse than Israel is. Like um, from a moral and political perspective, a country that gives people the right to vote is morally superior than a country that doesn't. And uh, almost no Arab country with the exception of Iraq, Lebanon, um, running out there, um, that's all I got. <laughs> so Tunisia, are they? I mean, still, that tells you something. That? 
Yeah, not really. Mm-hmm. No, Tunisia, Tunisia I wouldn't include in this category any longer. But the so right Shadi, to vote in meaningful elections. But Shadi, I mean, I, again, I, I'm, I'm no expert in this, but, but isn't that the idea of the two-state solution? You create some kind of probably less democratic than Israel-Palestinian state, um, and then probably, uh, you know, through, through encouragement, inducement, or, you know, outright coercion, uh, you get a population transfer. And there's your there's your state that then holds all the disaffected Israeli Arabs. I mean, no one says that out loud. But because- why would you want to live? Well, why would you want to live in in the new Palestinian state if you're an Israeli Arab? It's going to be a shitty state. No, I get it. Let's be but, honest but- about this. People don't talk about this. Like, who wants to live in this new Palestinian state? Oh, sure, but I, it's like, not going to have I, no one's no one's talking about population transfers as anything but hideously tra- tragic. I mean, I you know, I mean, the, the, the New Yorkers moving to Florida is the probably the least tragic population transfer. In the- history of like humanity <laughs> look look it's Agreed. look it should be up to israeli arabs if some of them do want to move to the new palestinian state more power to them but they shouldn't be pressured into doing that okay but like because, i mean again, they will like, be that's they, politics right like that's that's the ugly reality of the world it's like this is how things like work right well i don't think they'll be forced because they still will be israeli citizens they'll still have the right to vote there won't be any legal mechanism through which to expel them like that would be I don't even know how that would work legally. It would be very challenging. And it would also mean that Israel would no longer be a democracy because even with a minimalistic democracy, you have to you have to keep the right to vote. So if you're basically saying that Israeli Arabs will no longer be able to participate in the Israeli political process, then Israel is no longer a democracy, even according to the most minimalist definition. Even if there's one act, one sinful act of of anti-democratic behavior, i.e. like uh, a breaching of the democratic thing and then reverting back to pure democracy once your your sort of minoritarian problem is solved. Again, you know what I mean? Like, does it mean the fact that like, you know, basically... you know, the, the, no, that's it, not the way it works. So, like in America, if like if blacks were expelled and denied the right or denied the right to vote and whatever, and then you're like, oh, well, it's a pure democracy. European for democracies the are literally built on the fact that like people were expelled and that they're now ethnically pure. Like, you, and none of them would function. Well, they're not ethnically pure because of the Muslims who are there. No, oh, exactly. But I'm saying the fact is the whole the whole compact and the whole rise of democracy in Europe is predicated on massive population transfers and actually the 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 solving of the massive ethnic problems that that bedeviled the multi ethnic empires that exist previously and it like those states literally nation states democracies could not exist had they not gone through that that's that's the other part of it yes now, I'm, and, I'm, and aware so, of the, I'm aware of the state building process i just don't think that's a model that should be replicated oh, that's fine but does it mean they're not democracies that's all i'm saying i'm not saying it's good i'm not saying <laughs> no, this, no, is, no, no. Well, this is a model well, that we should be like cheering on i'm just saying this idea that you can't like do something horrible and then become a democracy after i don't see how that works but anyway yeah yeah but you would okay but uh, <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Sure, eventually you can that you can become a democracy over time. Sure, okay, but in the in the short term, if Israel disenfranchises Arabs, and and specifically when it comes to the right to vote, that's what I mean there. But also probably extend to other rights, the right to protest, and you know some might argue that even now, when Arabs protest in Israel proper, they are. You know, the May 2021 protests are an example where hundreds of Arabs were detained um, for just protesting, but we don't have to get into the specific instance. But 
you know, if that happened and these rights were denied, then the day after we couldn't be like, oh, well, the Arabs are gone. Now it's just pretty much Jews. Israel is like a full democracy. No, like there would there would have to be. Um, can you put a, what can you put a time frame you, on that? The cooling off period until they can regain democratic like, status I don't, again? I, don't, I actually don't know. I'm sure. So honestly, like I'm sure this would be such a not, I mean, at least in recent decades, like a fairly novel development. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested to read a little bit more about what scholars have said about, you know, a, well, I don't know if anyone's ever really written about a cooling off period. <laughs> so it might be a new area of post, scholarly inquiry. Post-ethnic cleansing. Yeah, yeah. post-ethnic cleansing <laughs> well, democracies. Me, come on. <laughs> well, let me just, can I just say that? Yeah. This it's all very speculative. I mean, if you look at any polling numbers of Israeli Arabs, you're not seeing the kind of stuff that you're talking about until now. So tomorrow, okay, I understand there's a new government, but like by and large, the whatever you call it, the approval ratings, and this comes out in a number of different polls, a number of different questions on those polls. Israeli Arabs are by and large um, extremely well adjusted and and overall, and I think to pretty high numbers satisfied and, and happy with their life in Israel. Now I'm very conscious of, you know, taking uh, people around okay, wait, the, I'm sorry. Know, Jim Crow sorry, sorry, Robert, I'm an- and saying everybody's happy. But I'm 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 talking about polling numbers, Shaddy. This isn't like Robert Okay, I don't know what you mean uh, by um extremely well adjusted or happy. I mean I I'd be curious to kind mobile. of dig into I mean compared to average Arabs and other countries, I mean I could we can uh, I'll, I'll exactly you some that's polls, the problem. You're, you're comparing what? you're comparing Arab Israelis to the shitty countries in the rest of the Middle East that are dictatorships that are like some of the worst places to live, and we're saying that Israel is better for Arabs. That's not the right comparison That's, no, because I, if you're I, an that, Israeli, I, no, if you're an Israeli I, citizen, you're yeah, I said that, but that's not. To, mm. I mean, do you? I mean, there are Sharia courts in Israel. I don't think you have that in Europe. Can we compare it to Europe? Can, you know, can you wear outward uh, religious symbols in Israel? Yeah. Can you, ha- pr- you know, do halal rules uh, in Israel? Yeah. Can you get, you know, do adoptions and family stuff and all kinds of other matters of personal status adjudicated by a uh, a Muslim judge who's trained in Sharia? Yeah. I mean, I you got, an, you know, you got an Islamist sitting in parliament, you know, talking about very Islamist things. And there's not a lot of places anywhere in the world where you see such a person allowed right. to participate in the political process. So I'm just saying on right, but it's a low grand bar. assessment. I just want to be careful about because it sounds like it's but it sounds like like the way you're talking, like tomorrow they might you know, the Israeli Arabs are gonna be thrown into this like it's not at that's all. Right. Like and I, that. I just want to where I do want to jump in, Robert, that yeah. like I'm just I was just pushing that line for for intellectual stuff. I you know, I, I I listeners should I think be aware if they're not following it that that's you know well, I mean we can debate that whether maybe this is a good pivot to start talking about the uh uh, the new Israeli government and the sort of the reality and like what what it may portend mm. uh, on all of this. But, you know, I, you know, just as for, for listeners. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, what I was getting at was was just basically pushing some weird thought experiments, taking shoddy sort of conception. I want to be clear. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I was responding mostly to Demir. I've never suggested that ethnic cleansing or population transfer is likely to happen to Arab citizens of Israel. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that, I mean, it is an interesting thought experiment because obviously there are fears of, you know, what might happen at some unspecified point in the future. But yes, it's not it's not a live concern right now. 
Um, I think, <laughs> but, but, you know, you bring up a really interesting point, Robert, that in some ways, if you're an Islamist, it's better to live in Israel than in France. That's it, weird. Yeah. If you, however, are a secular Arab, you're sort of in the worst of both worlds. If you live in Israel, mm. that how so, you know, well, because all the stuff that you just mentioned, the, the right to have adjudication Sharia courts and mm. displaying conspicuous religious symbols. If you're a secular Arab, that is not a priority for you and may even be completely irrelevant from the standpoint of rights. And if you're a secular Arab, then you can do quite well in in Swedish politics or in French politics. If you do, if you kind of keep your religion mm -hmm. private and you're Arab, there have been a number of Arab cabinet members um, in, in France, for example. There's even one right now, I think it's the Minister of Culture. But the Minister of Justice under Sarkozy in the 2000s, Rashida Dati, for example, there's any number of cases where if you're an Arab who is properly perceived as French and you do French mm -hmm. things and you don't talk about your religion, you can get to the very top. There is no mm. plausible scenario through because it's different, like ethnic. So it the the um the majority minority divide is of a different nature in Israel than it is in, say, France or Sweden. So there's a built-in limitation. There will never be um and certainly an Arab prime minister in in Israel. Um, you know, will there ever be an Arab? minister with portfolio yeah there maybe there might be one on a, like a fairly minor minor portfolio but can you imagine a minister of justice a minister of foreign affairs um uh, the the sovereignty ministries being led by a, a non-jewish person very unlikely that scenario so maybe that's the, like a <clears throat> i think that's a relevant distinction maybe a good way to put it is that yeah. like Huelebeck can imagine an islamic france um it would be hard to imagine mm. an Islamic Israel, I guess, is the is maybe the, the exactly. Oh, well, well put. Well put. It's true, I guess, and not to beat the dead horse, but it's just a nature of the work that I do, which is, you know, in a number of different fronts, not just Israel. It's just way too common to meet people in other countries around the region who can't, you know, gain the highest level of of government office right or or be a minister or, or unless they toe the line and say things that, that they don't believe in i mean this is it's just a very i don't it's not a regional thing i think it's probably everywhere but yeah. in the region it's extremely common right so that's why it's it doesn't well, why are we seem comparing israel so if israel but if israel is a democracy why are we comparing yeah. it to countries that are not democracies. I mean, this always makes me a little bit nervous. Why is the relevant metric what happens in Egypt to Christians? Um, or well, you or said really Iraq is a democracy. Take your pick. Can, can a Christian be a president of Iraq right now? I, I just don't think that's possible. Can a Yazidi? There's no way, right? I mean, there's just certain barriers that exist for reasons that we can't help. And that's just the way it is. Now, does that mean Christians can't live in Iraq? No, I think they need a lot of help. There's very few there these days, but Christians there are very, you know, if you talk to them, they'll be like, I, I want to be Iraqi. I want to live here. I just want to be respected. I want rights. Uh, give me give me the dignity I'm owed. Carve out a space for me and my 
my people to do the things that we do and respect us. And, and that seems to me to be the proper attitude. Same with Egypt. You go to Egypt, people there aren't thrilled, Christians or Muslims, but there's there's a certain amount of things that they would be satisfied with. They're not mad because they can't be president. That doesn't seem to be the issue. Yeah, but 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 right. But that is, again, like a bit of a low bar. I mean, there, there can be. Uh, so I think there, it's much more likely to have Christian cabinet ministers in Iraq than than it is in in Israel but anyway True. but certainly there has been Le- a Lebanese you know Lebanese Christian presidents so I certainly when we're looking at the other partial <laughs> democracy in the region Lebanese Lebanon is a no, very just, different kind of I know I know thing. I'm just saying I'm just saying I'm just saying like I, I I it's not clear to me why I mean obviously Israel is a Middle Eastern state in a geographical sense but I'm a little bit uncomfortable with comparisons. That's the only point I'm trying to make, comparing it to countries that, even if they are somewhat democratic, like Iraq, are very recent democracies and have been, you know, um, struggling with civil war for off and on since 2003. So it's a low bar if we're saying, well, okay, well, it's a problem in Iraq too, right? That's all I'm trying to say there. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I, I think I disagree on that point, but I mean, and it's it's, it's just it's funny that you bring low bars. I don't want to beat that dead, dead horse. And I, I do want to talk about the the new the new. <laughs> what sort is of, this dead horse that people keep well, on talking? Robert about? said it's part of his job is to, be, to beat a dead horse. So I'm just helping him in his work. No, I mean, it's but just, I don't even know what the I don't even know what this expression means. You know, like in Egypt, a horse dies and you just keep beating it. You just beat it and keep beating it. It's like it's, it comes from Egypt. I think it's your also in Iraq. <laughs> No, 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 no. But or like, beat the dead camel. Yeah, camel. Sorry, that's it. That's the, that's that's the difference. So that's why it didn't translate. No, shoddy. But but again, like you know, when you talk about low bar, though, again, it's it's uh, it, it it just betrays, I think, a, a value judgment on your part, which you're not willing to then take to a higher level because you're you're which is what? intellectually you're satisfied with the status quo in Israel. You're committed to a satisfaction at this very low bar. This is how, like, best we can hope for from managing plural things. But then you admit that you're unhappy about it, and then you sort of nitpick on it and say, like, well, it's a low bar to say that peoples in other parts of the Middle East or even around the world, minorities are treated like shit, and we can do better. But it's not on the grounds of, you know, uh, you're not basing that on sort of a call to, you know, universal justice, individual dignity, you know, rights above, like, what's guaranteed by by minimum democracy, because your commitments are at that lower level. So when you start talking about that's a low bar, uh, I mean, you, maybe you're bracketing that and saying, well, that's my opinion, and I'm just arguing that, but I, I don't want to make claims above what I think about that. And that's fine. But still, like, you know, low bar, I think when, you, when you're you're arguing for minimal democracy, I think you, your your argument for a higher bar is not that like I don't know compelling. Okay, I guess. but you, sh- but Demir, you're also aware that one of my consistent themes in, in what I do and what I write is that democracies are fundamentally different than non-democracies. Sure. Okay. So I do put Israel in a com- in a different category, and Iraq, since it's not you know it's obviously a fl- a very flawed and still young democracy. Like if that's the only example we're able to point to and say, well, okay, Iraq is a sort of counterpoint. But, you know, but generally generally speaking, I tend to put Israel in the, you know, we, we tend to see Israel as a full democracy. It's been established since 1948. There's a long history of democratic competition there. So, you know, I I think it's reasonable to say that 
it, you know, we hold, uh, I know that you won't like this, Robert, and I, I, I don't love it in every instance too, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> go on, go on, say it. Mm-hmm. You know, not. I don't want to say like we hold Israel to a high, higher standard because, <laughs> you know, but, no, but we do hold for, for be, no, no, let me clear. I, I hold Israel to a higher standard, not because of anything relating to the Jewish character of the state. That to me is going down a dangerous route. Sure. I do hold Israel to a higher standard for the very simple reason that it's a consolidated democracy that's been around for the better part of, you know, 75 years. But it qualifies as a minimal democracy. Like all everything, despite all the shortcomings of, you know, what we would say in the yeah. United States of pluralism and, you know, minority rights and et cetera, and like individualism and blah, 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 you know, all the American stuff that blinds us to you know, the hard realities of the world, you would say that Israel qualifies as a, you know, like basically a functional and even successful minimal democracy, even though you personally don't like some of the the short end of the stick that Israeli exactly. Arabs that's my face. position. Yes. Yeah. Okay, You've but that's what I'm saying. Correctly. But that what I'm describing there though is that still you say it's a low bar. I mean, I get it. I get it. Point taken. These are unconsolidated democracies. But look, still, guys, I just, you want look, democracies look, to be more I, than minimal democracies is what I'm getting at here. I feel like you want to make I that mean, claim because you're not satisfied I mean, with minimal I would, democracy. Look, I have my own preferences. Just yeah. like I mean at a very basic level, do I want uh, do I want less anti-Muslim bigotry in the U.S.? Yes, and I've been very clear about that. I like that Trump lost. Well, he forgot about Muslims in the second time around, so maybe it wouldn't have been an issue regardless. But do I like it when there's less discrimination and prejudice against Muslims and Arabs? Yeah, of so, course I do. But, but it's like less than a moral claim and more than a preference for chocolate over vanilla, right? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Wait, sorry, sorry. What do you mean? I'm saying it's you're not making a moral claim. You're just actually making a preference claim, and maybe it's a more firmly held preference than your preference for chocolate ice cream over vanilla ice cream. Whatever. I'm making up some some triviality of your preferences. I don't know what ice cream you like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. All. Look. Also, there's a personal aspect to it. You know. I'm right. Not, like, but let's not pretend that this is as a Muslim. That I'm, you feel. But no, the fact like, that I'm Arab and Muslim presumably has some. It's a feeling impact though. on how I view the rights of Arabs and Muslims. But you're just sort of expounding on your inner state. Like you're See, not actually like making that. a claim beyond that. See, I no, that to me. No, I, but I, I, mm. <laughs> go on, Robert. Yeah, but I I think that's important to point out, Shadi. I, I actually. I, I respect you on, on many levels, but I but I respect that you're very self-aware. And I try to be self-aware in all of the th- things that I do, right? I mean, there's a reason I work on the things I work on and care about the things that I care about. You think I'm beating that dead horse of Christians in the region camel. just for no reason? It's because the camel, right, right. It's because, like, why would I care about that? Hmm, gee, I, I don't know. What, what do you think that could be about? It's okay. That's normal to me, right? And I think that the more we acknowledge that there's a reason why, for example, people who've never been to Palestine are standing there at the World Cup singing songs about Palestine is is very much related to the mythical way that we're all living our lives, right? It's the same way people are gathering in churches in, in this country and waving Israeli flags. They feel some kind of amorphous, uh, you know, cosmic connection, some affinity that makes them care more, right? That maybe makes them a little bit uh, blind to some of the realities, a little bit willing to make exceptions for for their side of the 
of any given conflict. That to me is all that needs to be stitched in to the conversations, right? Own the bias. What are you, who's who's not biased? I've never met somebody like that. Like there's a reason you're saying Good. what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? You get me? Well, I don't want to say I, it's I, only I'm, I'm because I'm Arab and Muslim, just to be clear. I mean, I think- But how are you, you know, you know, but this is it, like, because you sound like you're making moral claims, but you refuse to. That's all I'm getting at. And it's fine because I'm very sympathetic. <laughs> the mirror's to, mad to, about that. I'm, no, I'm very happy about this. I, I, I like to actually like deflate your moral claims because I don't think you can make them from the, the framework that you've set up for yourself. That's good because I'm not into moral claims. I'm with Robert on this. I think, you know, own your situation and the rest of it, but you're not comfortable with that, Shadi. I mean, not the way you're talking. You want to make a, a stronger claim from personal preference on this, and that's fine. But you know, I just think there's a there's something there that that's that's it's a it's something that I enjoy poking at. That's all. No, and I appreciate and that, I and listening. I think Robert, you're what? <laughs> oh, I said, and I, and I enjoy listening, and I think we all do. And I speak for the listeners of this esteemed podcast. <laughs> and they're they're, look they're in for a real treat because this is all part two so the people who are listening to this are having an i mean they're very lucky to be hearing this (laughs) but listen because this is not something you're going to hear in public a lot of the time but so robert can you can we talk a little hmm. bit about the about the the incoming israeli government i mean i i really just i think it's a good thing to wrap up on this you know i Mm -hmm. the only thing um you know i I'm not an expert on it. I haven't been to Israel before you took us there, and I haven't been since. Uh, so you know, I, I I'm I'm shaped by. Demir by only goes to Israel when you invite him. That's literally, right. <laughs> note note, Robert. <laughs> um, but the I hear the, you. the the um, you know, I was uh, I was reading um, a review of Bibi Netanyahu's biography uh, by Micah Goodman uh, in the Jerusalem Post. Ah, yeah, I saw um, that. Mm-hmm. It's a really good and interesting essay. What really struck me about mm-hmm. it, um, which I, I guess, you know, I didn't fully appreciate about Netanyahu was um, the extent to which he's not religious or at least not like that, that, mm. that, that what drives him is, is not faith, <laughs> uh, at least to hear Micah Goodman tell his uh, mm-hmm. analysis of the book, which I haven't read either. So, you know, and I haven't read any other reviews of it. But uh, that to me was was really interesting in light of the government that's coming in right now. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know, use that as a jumping off point to say a few words about this government, like what's to be expected. You know, it seems like, the, again, it's what that article, and we'll put it in the show notes, sort of really, I think, gets at to me is, again, that sort of like infinite and interesting, fascinating complexity of Israel, right? Is that Netanyahu mm-hmm. leads from the right, his intellectual sort of history, his father, you know, Jabotinsky, like traces all of that, you know, all of his sort of core beliefs to a kind of secular Zionism, right? Um, mm. A real politique Zionism of sorts, is, if it's one way to put it. And yet, you know, it now culminates in this government that that he's going to be heading. Mm. Um, I don't know, pack, unpack that a little bit, you know, just so listeners get yeah. a, a taste of what's happening. The one time I've encountered... Mr. Netanyahu, I had one question for him, and it was about Zionism. Because if you hear the way many people talk about Netanyahu, it's often as a right-wing kind of religious extremist, uh, fellow traveler with the ultra-Orthodox, etc. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, who just don't know any better, that he's like a like a religious nut. He's like a settler and, and all of this. 
And of course, I know that that's not true. He's hardly observant in a kind of rabbinic way. And yet I was curious what he would say. Like, how do you define Zionism was basically what I asked him. What does it mean? And to, to paraphrase his answer, he said, it is a, a program to protect the Jewish people, right? No religion. I don't even think he mentioned God. He's a big fan of, of Will Durant, who's a great historian, somebody I, I love, who, who makes the case at some point that, uh, you know, in the long view, in the long run of history, Caesar and Christ really have no advantage one over the other, right? Caesar is no, no more at a disadvantage than, than Jesus was in terms of who he was and his realpolitik. That's, that's a very Will Durant kind of thing. And, and from what I know about BB, he's read Will Durant books like over and over for years. He's one of his favorites. And that is, uh, Mika Goodman is exactly right. His fundamental principle, his monist uh, principle, to, to use his terms, is, is just protecting Jews, right? So he thinks about Jews not as Judaism, nor as just kind of a race or an ethnic group. He thinks of it as Am Yisrael, right? It's the, it's the combination of all of those things. And the purpose of Israel is to keep the Jewish people going in history. And he's not convinced that it's a shoe-in, right? And this is where he betrays a lot of his irreligiosity, right? He's not, okay, we're back now, you know, Messiah will come or like none of that. He's like, we're back now. We need to fight like tooth and nail to stay here because we might get kicked out, right? And go back into exile for another 2000 years. And for him, everything is sacrificed at that altar. You know, people say, you know, Israeli security, uh, you know, as if it's this sort of throwaway line. But for Bibi, that's, it is everything. And it's, it's, it's the survival of the Jewish people. Now he just so happens to speak in a way that resonates with people who also feel they are links in a chain who feel a connection to Sinai and feel a duty to pass that connection on to their kids, right? Which is usually people of faith or, or at least, you know, traditional uh, people. And that's why he speaks so well. And in a way, Trump did a similar thing, right? He's not a religious guy at all. And yet he understood that people care about conserving things, right? Taking things from the past and passing them on to the future. And he spoke in such a way that people like that, even though they know the guy is not at all like them, uh, voted for him. I think it's not not that not that different with uh, with Bibi. I mean, you know, it's interesting you bring up Trump there, and it's 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 you know, I don't know, I don't know, Shot, if you had a chance to read the the Goodman piece, but it, it's you know, no. it's not it's not it's not that important the specifics of it. But I guess what's striking about it is that you know whether there's something. <sighs> Whether someone reading that piece, it, whether it's that that sort of you know deep unsentimentality, um, that I think uh, makes people really suspect of him in many ways. That you know, I mean, I was talking uh, today to to a friend. It's like you know, trying to sort of really unpack what is it about Trump early on that just revolted everyone to him, and you know, I mean, I think in in sort of common, you know talk we say is like obviously he was undemocratic at the beginning or like unpluralist or there's something there's something sort of unyielding in the worldview that is trumpism and you know to a large part in netanyahu's telling as well because uh that 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 fear about you know protecting having a it's a it's a project to protect the jews 
um, that doesn't really admit to the kind of pluralism we were talking about earlier. Like, you, mm -hmm. you, it's difficult to, um, on the basis of that, construct any kind of actual cohabitating pluralism. So, I mean, again, to push mm -hmm. you on, like, this, this government that's coming in, you know, I mean, it's fascinating mm -hmm. to one extent that Netanyahu himself is not religious. And yet, as you said, you know, he appeals to sort of religious voters and you get this kind of, I don't know, where's this all heading, I guess? What do you think? It's, it's a big question. I'm, I'm concerned uh, about what's, what's going to happen. Um, there's, a, there's a lot, I think, that's kind of coming to a head on the, the Jewish side in Israel, on the Palestinian side, both you know, in the country and also in West Bank, Gaza territories. And um, I think it's not unrelated to a lot of what we're seeing elsewhere, right? This country, Italy, Hungary, there's lots of lots of stuff um, that is that is similar, right? Israel is not out of step with the rest of the world here in in what they're doing and why voters are doing what they're doing. Um, but where it's all going, I think, is only comprehensible if you kind of look at the trends, right? Israel's becoming more Middle Eastern. You know, just just ethnically, if you want to call it that, like the, more than 50 percent, I think it's like 60 percent of Jews in Israel are of, you know, uh, Mizrahi or Sephardi, uh, um, you know, ancestry, uh, either on one side or both. And uh, you also find as a consequence, the society is also it looks and feels more more Jewish. Right. There's this there's this constituency inside Israel nobody ever talks about for whatever reason. That is uh, masorti or, or traditional, right? Everybody knows about the ultra orthodox. Everybody knows about the, the religious Zionists or kind of the settlers as they're known. And then there's the secular people, which is still the single biggest group at like 40, 45 percent of Israeli Jews. But there's this huge group uh, that's bigger than the ultra orthodox and bigger than the religious Zionists that are just traditional Jews. And these are often people from, you know, Middle Eastern Jewish backgrounds who may not, uh, you know, observe the halakha punctiliously, but they do light candles on Friday night and they do uh, say prayers and they may go to synagogue, but then they'll come home and break all the rules and watch, you know, a soccer game or something. That's a huge and growing category in Israel. Uh, it's religious, but not extreme in a way you could say. Um, and I think it's that to me is is an important bellwether about where things are going. I think in the near to medium term, Israel will continue to become more Jewish. Now, what that means is unclear. Like, will that be reflected like rigidly hardcore in public law? Are some of these Sabbath rules going to be strictly enforced? And, you know, there's a whole debate about that happening right now. And of course, the ultra-Orthodox parties coming in with Bibi's government, they're, they're, they're going maximal. They want as much as they can possibly get. They feel some wind in their sails and, and they're asking for everything and expecting the other side to negotiate down. And then you have Itamar Ben-Gvir, the guy, sort of the, the bad boy of, of this election, right? This is the guy everybody's talking about. He's also of, of Middle Eastern background. He, his family's from Iraq. Um, which is not to me unrelated to to some of his the ways he thinks about the region. It's kind of counterintuitive in a funny way. And um, somebody who's come in extremely outspoken about what he wants. He's going to be likely in charge of security, 
uh, in the West Bank, or let's let's say he's going to have a, an, an outsized role in the formation of security policy there, and he's going to come in. And I, I I'm not a prophet prophet here, but I will say I'm sure he's going to come in and do the same thing. Go maximalist. I guarantee you, he'll take a visit to the Temple Mount and just kind of see what happens. And it's going to be on Bibi. Like Bibi's created this situation for himself to to hold the line, right? And he said, you know, in response to a lot of Israeli Jews, Israelis in general, who are freaked out by all this, they're saying, listen, I'm the prime minister. This guy works for me. I'm going to, I'm going to, what he's really saying is I'm going to make sure he doesn't do all the stuff you're scared of. But that's, that's not going to be so easy. And Ben Gvir is not the only guy. There's a few others in this government who they, they have an agenda. And, um, it's really, in a weird way, uh, you know, a, a situation in which BB becomes—I can't say the hero—but he's the guy. Like BB is the guy who can stop this or let it happen. And so, in a, in, a, in a strange twist of the plot, I think there's a lot of people now hoping BB is as strong and as wily as everyone thinks he is and is able to undermine this guy from within the government. Now, you gotta remember, Bibi's got a huge ego. So, you know, no one wants to be, you know, to have Bibi's legacy tarnished by this guy, um, you know, less than Bibi. Bibi. Bibi is very much aware that he is Israel's greatest prime minister, um, maybe with the exception of Ben-Gurion, certainly the longest serving. And he is going to make sure that, um, it's not said in future generations that everything went off the rails when when Bibi was in charge. So that I mean, that's not much consolation, but I do think it's a factor. Hmm. Okay, so I was talking. I was talking to to a friend who follows Israeli politics closely, and I compared Ben Gvir to. Um, am I pronouncing that right? By the way, Ben Gvir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What were you so, looking at? So I was talking. So, uh, and I, I, I compared Ben Veer to um, to MAGA Republicanism. I'm like, if we want to think about like the mainstream of the Republican Party versus MAGA Trumpism, maybe this is comparable. And he said, actually, no. Ben Veer actually is more comparable to David Duke. I, I, I don't know enough to to say if that's accurate, but that's just one thing to keep in mind. At the very least, I do want to convey to listeners that we're not just talking about your normal far-right, run-of-the-mill person. We're talking about far-right. And then I would also just say that one thing that that concerns me the most is the so-called override clause, where, you know, essentially, if this gets through, then the Supreme Court will not have final jurisdiction, as oftentimes Supreme Courts do, that it can be quite literally be overridden by by a large majority. So when we're talking about illiberal democracy, I mean, this is a very practical manifestation of it where um, the Supreme Court is bas- basically, its status is, is changed in an important way. And all, there, there was an, uh, an Israeli scholar who I was, um, talking to about this in France, as one does in the south of France, uh, moreover. Um, last month, I won't say who he is because it's a private conversation, but he he was um, 
he was really emphasizing that Israel's Supreme Court is one of the most activist Supreme Courts in the world. I don't know how accurate that statement is, but he was also complaining, and perhaps, you know, with with um, with reason about that there is a real deep state in Israel, a bureaucracy, and he includes the judiciary as kind of the tip of the sphere, the tip of the spear in this regard. That and I imagine we didn't talk. Uh, he wants to override. Basically, he want he thinks that it's time to constrain the Supreme Court's um, jurisdiction. But I'm curious. Anyway, that's just something to be concerned about and something to think about that there is something that is in play right now. But I'm curious on these two points, how we think about Ben Veer and how we think about the override clause. Maybe that's a good place to to end and take stock. Mm -hmm. Well, your friend is right. Ben Veer is very much uh, not just a MAGA Republican. For example, I recently learned that until not that long ago, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir had a picture of Baruch Goldstein, uh, the infamous um, Tomb of the Patriarchs murderer, the guy who in the 1990s got a, got a gun and went into this holy place in Hebron and just started killing Muslim worshipers. Um, a picture of this guy hanging in his living room. Now, wow. if, if that's yeah. not extreme then I don't know what is. I mean, that's that's just sick. Now, apparently somebody, you know, a friend who cared told him, hey, you know, that just for optics reasons, maybe take that down, which he apparently did. And now I should say- That's what friends are for, said, right? That's what, yeah. Friends don't let friends, yeah. you know, celebrate mass murderers. Um, so now he does say, and this is something, this is one of those things I have to throw in. He says he's different now. He's changed some of his rhetoric, whatever. I, I don't buy it. Um, I think the guy's nuts. How, is, how does right? he say he's different? I'm just curious because I'm not up to speed. So how does he say he's changed and moderated? What does he think about well, Arabs actually I mean, there's like one, right now, Arab there's citizens one, well, of Israel? So one thing he has moderated, it's actually related to Arabs, is, is, is the word Arab. So usually... When he would speak until, you know, six months ago, when he would talk about the bad guys, he would say Alavim, right? Which Arabs, just Arabs, all Arabs is the is the upshot there. Now he says Machablim, which is terrorists, right? So when he's, uh, you know, saying the same sentences, he just swaps out the words. Um, and he's been very clear. Wait, is hey, that guys, a, did wait, you notice I did that? Yeah, he's specifying. He's saying not so all are we, we're are saying that's an improvement. Yeah. I want to be clear. Are we? Wait, but we. He is saying is. that that that's an improvement because what he's saying is okay. I mean, if this is me making his argument for him, okay. Look, yeah, it's true. I probably shouldn't have said Arabs. Obviously, not all Arabs are bad guys. But what I really meant to say was terrorists. So from now on, I'm going to be a little bit more careful, and I'm going to say I'm going to say terrorists to avoid any misunderstandings. Yeah. That would which be which is effectively reading. equivalent to all Arabs. I mean, that's another way of looking right. at it. You I could, mean, you could say if they're so synonymous <laughs> that you could swap them out, then yeah, that's. that's no, he's being more specific, right. Shadi. Come on, give, give oh, them that some credit. Okay. Well, no, the what guy, does he think listen. about Arab rights, though? Like citizen, Israeli so, citizens of Arab origin. He would. It, right now, his line is that Arab citizens of Israel, peaceful Arab citizens of Israel who want to live there and do the regular stuff are are perfectly fine. His problem is, and this is why the change, is with terrorists. With right? the bad Arabs. With the bad Arabs. Inject <laughs> the bad Arabs, right? 
right? That's the proper translation of terrorists, bad Arabs. Um, and look, not you mentioned earlier, Shadi, the, the May 2021, and you call them protests. They were they were more like pogroms in the eyes of Israeli Jews. I mean, these people were burning down synagogues, violence in the streets, very small number of, of Israeli Arabs, but it was a shock because- Okay, but there, there were some peaceful protests. Are, I mean, okay. There were. But there, there, there were, were. peaceful- yeah, yeah. So the, the the concern here is this idea that anyone who was in the presence who was who 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 was peaceful in a particular area is then being lumped in with some of these violent acts. And there's a kind of generalized like if you if you're an Israeli citizen and you're Arab and you were in any way protesting in May 2021. Anyway, we don't have to get into all the details about that. Well, all but I'm saying yeah, point taken. All I'm saying is, and and now I'm speaking sociologically, like. It was a huge shock, even on the part of extremely secular Tel Aviv Israeli Jews, to see Israeli Arabs who they see every day, they work with every day. They, you know, as Arabs who speak Hebrew with no accent, just like totally regular people, doing that kind of thing. So it's a small minority, it's a big minority, whatever. It didn't matter. It was just a shock to the body politic, and it. I would draw a direct line between what happened last May and some of what we're seeing today. Now, it's not the only reason. There are other things. Iran is on the horizon, you know, this, some of the same old stuff. But there is a fear, you know, for all of the the vaunted strength of Israel and the Abraham Accords and all this. Israeli Jews don't feel a whole lot safer. And some of them, some, a small minority, uh, voted for that party that, that Itamar Ben-Gvir is part of and was sort of swept up in this larger movement of, of right, center-right, people and now he's in this position or he will be of incredible influence and uh, I said before I'll say it again I'm I'm worried about it I, I definitely and especially as Palestinians are more desperate than ever with with no leadership either from Hamas or the PLO um, not you know the Arab states have you know turned their back on Palestinians to some extent at least from their perspective because of the Abraham Accords there's there's a real feeling of who cares? There's nothing to live for. Let's just go out with a bang, right? Support for the armed struggle is up. And you have these things coming together. And of course, they're mutually reinforcing, right? Hamas loves Ben Gvir and Ben Gvir loves Hamas in a way, because what mm. he says, they prove true. And what they say, he proves true, right? They could both point to the other and say, see, this is exactly why we need to be here. And um, that's that's where things get dangerous, right? When things start to become not just shaped by religion, which is what I was saying earlier, but they be like religion becomes the reason why we need to go out in the streets and fight the blank. You know, that's what Ben Gvir could do. Now, I, I'm not, I don't believe this guy is falling. I'm not there yet. I, I'm concerned and I don't, I'm not panicking, but it could like in a way that it couldn't last year. Well, that's an appropriately pessimistic note on which to end. <laughs> I think you know, it's wisdom that, of crowds. No, it's optimistic, right? He's, he's, it's not <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's cautiously optimistic. Robert it's thinks it's <laughs> Yeah, Robert, this was awesome. Like this was an incredibly rich conversation. I I love the kind of contrast that we went into, and it's mm -hmm. just a reminder that you know if you if you like Robert's his kind of broad minded engagement and the fact that. He can talk to people who he disagrees with and we're all friends at the end of the day then you do want to listen to his podcast it's available on all major podcast platforms it's called the deep map 
I would definitely encourage you to listen to one episode in particular. I won't tell you which one that is, but think about it. But there's First a number one, one in it. It's episode one. It's episode one. <laughs> and we'll yeah. include a, a, link, a link to the podcast in the show notes. Um, Robert, thanks so much. To be continued. Yeah, thanks, Robert. To be continued. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back.